your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Last week, we finished our series on the book of Habakkuk. And that poses a, a unique uh, situation for us because we have Easter coming up. And I've never heard of a pastor do a series in two weeks, right? Well, at least this one. Uh, I've never done a series in two weeks. So we're going to do a, a standalone message today in 1 Corinthians 4. Next week, we'll turn our, our attention to 1 Peter. The following week, we will celebrate Easter together. And then something I've been looking forward to for a long time, we'll begin our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But for today, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There was a well-known athlete who boarded a plane. He got on the plane and he was seated along with the other passengers. And of course, the pilot said over the intercom to strap on your seatbelts and, and be seated and all the, the, the same uh, uh, song and dance you hear when you board a plane. And so all the passengers complied except for one. One of the flight attendants looked down and saw this individual without his seatbelt on. And the flight attendant said, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to fasten your seatbelt. And he uttered these words, Superman don't need no seatbelt. I think it would be safe to assume that this individual had a glaring problem with pride. Wouldn't you say? There's another athlete that many of you remember very well. He said this, I fly like a butterfly. I sting like a bee. He said, I am the greatest. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He went on to say, I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. He said, at home, I'm a nice guy, but I don't want the world to know because humble people I've found don't get very far. Now, these are statements that come from the mouth, of course, of one of the greatest boxers of all time, Muhammad Ali. And you may be here this morning and you have not stooped to that kind of level like Muhammad Ali did. But even in your best moments, my suspicion would be that you all struggle, we all struggle with pride. The Corinthian church struggled with pride. There were a wide range of issues that they dealt with in this first century church. They struggled with unity. They struggled being a, a church who was unified. They had issues, of course, with morality, with marriage, with Christian liberty, Today we will partake of the Lord's Supper. There were significant challenges that were posed in this church about the Lord's Supper. There were spiritual gift controversies, as you know, that revolved around the so-called sign gifts. And so what was the problem with the church, bottom line, in this day? They were an arrogant people. Paul said they were, they were puffed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He refers to how they struggle with the sin of pride. And instead of boasting in the cross, many of the Corinthian believers were boasting in themselves. These were people who thought that they had arrived. 
They were overflowing with pride. They had a high opinion of themselves. They were conceited, and they took an unsavory delight in their achievements and their possessions. Here's what one commentator said about many of the believers in Corinth. He said, the basic fault of the Corinthians was that they had forgotten that they owed their souls to God. They were strangely similar to the Israelites in the Old Testament who were warned repeatedly, most notably by the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 6. And I want you to listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. He says this, Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. As we begin to make our way through several verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we need to ask this question, what does God think about pride? What does God think about pride? Proverbs chapter 6 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here they are, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. In Psalm chapter 101, verse 5, Scripture says, Whoever has a haughty look at an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Or James chapter 4, God opposes whom? The proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Please remember that when we think about the sin of pride, the, the overriding theme that we find running through Scripture is that if you're a man or a woman of pride, that God will, in no uncertain terms, oppose you to your face. We can't help but remember Isaiah chapter 66, a Scripture that we have reviewed many times over the years, that this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Simply put, the Corinthians were stuck in a web of pride. They turned to self, and as a result, they turned away from God. And isn't that the way it works in life? Whenever we turn inward, whenever we turn to self, by definition, we turn away from God. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, this is the resource that the women have been studying. I'm so happy they've been studying this book. It is a it is a treasure chest of truths that are really changing the lives of women here at Christ Fellowship. Here's what Dr. Piper says. Every turning from God for anything presumes a kind of autonomy or independence that is the essence 
of pride. That's the essence of pride. And as a result, these Corinthian believers were self-assured, self-satisfied, trapped in self-love, ensnared by self-deception. In short, they were behaving like little kids. These Christ followers were behaving in carnal ways. And I would argue that we're no different today. Many times we are like these Corinthian believers. We too struggle with the sin of pride. We want to be seen and noticed. We want to be recognized. We want to to show people that we have all the answers. That we can do it on our own. We We can do life on our own. And so one of the important spiritual antidotes to spiritual pride is found right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Namely, and it might surprise you, there is a need for spiritual fathering. There is a need for spiritual fathering. The Corinthians were desperately in need of spiritual fathering. And the same goes true for us. Ken alluded to this in the call to worship. There is a desperate need for God-centered fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. There, we, we run through three generations. This applies to many people here in this sanctuary today. The desperate need for God-centered dads and granddads and great-granddads. And so I want to give a very specific and pointed challenge to men this morning, a a challenge that will uh, affect the whole sanctuary. You might wonder, wait a minute, if I'm a woman or if I'm a girl, how does that affect me? And there was a time in my ministry when I would challenge men that I I would grow nervous with with inviting men to that challenge because I I feel like the women and the girls were left out. And I've I've given up on being concerned about that. And here's the reason why. And the women will shout a hearty amen here in just a minute. What women have come to understand over the years is that there is a a vacuum of male leadership. Yeah, increasingly so. And... What women will freely acknowledge is if, if men will step up to the plate, if men will step up and lead men of integrity, men who serve, men who stoop low for their wives and for their family, every woman will jump up and shout a hearty amen. And so what you'll find this morning is if you're a woman or a, or a young girl, even though this, this passage that we're going to draw forth will not apply specifically and directly to you, you will know this, that if the men in your lives, if husbands and, and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, if they step up to the leadership plate, it will have an amazing impact in your life. It will have an amazing impact in the lives of your children. And so I, I, I trust and I pray that you'll find great, uh, some great principles in this passage today. So the title of the message is God-Centered Dads. And I want to have you stand to your feet and we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 beginning in verse 14. Paul says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray together. Father, I pray first for uh, fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers here in this place that this uh, scripture would, would be a challenge to them, but more than a challenge, it would be an encouragement for them to live a God-centered life, first and foremost for your glory, but also for the sake of their wife, for the sake of their children, for the sake of their grandchildren. Lord, I pray that you would would raise up a a godly remnant here at Christ Fellowship. Over the years, we have seen many men pick up the mantle of leadership, and you have blessed them. More importantly, you have blessed their families, and we pray that that would just continue in the days ahead. And for, for the women and for the girls here at Christ Fellowship, I pray that they would be encouraged as they hear this challenge, that as the men in their life step up to the leadership plate, that they would receive blessing, that they would be encouraged, and that they would uh, rejoice in all that you're doing here in this place. We trust you to do mighty things once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the basic question I want to to pose this morning, and that is, what are the marks of a God-centered dad? And instead of saying dad, granddad, great-granddad, I'm just going to say the marks of a God-centered dad. And you'll know exactly what I'm referring to. The first one occurs in verse 14 where Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my dear children. The first mark of a God-centered dad is is one that may sound counterintuitive, and it is certainly countercultural. It is one that is not popular, but necessary for every God-centered dad. And it is this, that he corrects the wayward. A God-centered dad corrects the wayward. And right smack dab in the middle of verse 14 is a little English word that comes from the Greek word nuthateo. And the word is admonish. And it is a, a super, super important word. It is translated in various ways throughout the Greek New Testament as instruct or teach or to warn. J. Adams says this about this Greek word. He says, Nuthetic activity particularly characterizes the work of the ministry. Think about that. The, the very essence of a New Testament ministry is when men step up to the plate and admonish the wayward, instructing the wayward, teaching the wayward. That is, warning people was a, an absolutely vital aspect of Paul's ministry. And so I, I want to show you a series of scriptures, and these would be worth jotting down to look at later. I want you to see Paul's ministry of admonition. 
And we'll put these verses on the screen for you. The first is found in Acts 20.31. And notice how these are translated in various ways based on the context. In Acts 20.31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And you can see this in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He was not ashamed to challenge someone, to admonish someone who was walking down a wayward path. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. One of the things that I have discovered in the so-called Christian counseling movement, there is this idea that unless you are formally trained to be a biblical counselor, then you don't qualify to be a biblical counselor. Nothing could be further from the truth. Here in Romans chapter 15, Paul says that you, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are walking according to the Spirit, if you're a, a, a person of the Word of God, Men and women, boys and girls, you have a a special ability to instruct. You have the ability to instruct one another. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. And the context here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Him or Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so this ministry of admonition in Paul's mind has a very specific emphasis. When a person is admonished or confronted or taught with the claims of the truths of Scripture, what the aim is, is that this person would grow up to be a fully functioning follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, if you've been following along over the years, you know that the mission of Christ Fellowship is to make mature followers or disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the verse that is emblazoned in the entryway when you walk in. And there's a reason that it, it, is, it is printed there on the wall. It's at the very essence of what we seek to accomplish as the church. We have a desire for, for boys and girls and men and women to grow up to be mature followers of the Lord Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I was watching a documentary yesterday, walking on the treadmill, killing two birds with one stone, and heard physician after physician after physician say that life longevity is increased with people who give thanks. Now, these are not Christian people. These are secular scientists Secular physicians, secular psychologists saying they have discovered, surprise, surprise, that those who are grateful live longer. Isn't that something? It's exactly what the Word of God tells us to do, to be a, a thankful lot. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, to admonish you. 
to instruct you. And then finally in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Now there's an interesting scripture. Dads, if you have children who are idle, what does the word of God tell you to do? You want the revised standard translation? Get off the couch, right? Get out of bed and get to work. Dads and grandfathers are charged with admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and be patient with all. Let me apply this quickly and we'll move on to the second mark. God-centered fathers love their children so much that they warn them. And this is my fear. My fear is that sometimes dads shy away from admonishing their children because they feel like my children will think I'm a hard nose. They'll feel like I'm, I'm a legalist. They'll feel like I'm, uh, uh, the, the dad feels like I'll, I'll turn my kids away. Well, guess what? We are called as godly men to love our children so much that we admonish them. Fathers who love their children warn them when they walk away from God or manifest attitudes that are not pleasing to him. When I was first married, Jerrine and I had been married a few years, I, I started a, a, a friendship with a, with a gentleman who had recently become a Christian. I was mentoring him. I was discipling him. We were meeting on a weekly basis, and it became very evident that he got off the rails at one point in time. And he began to walk down a path that was not pleasing to the Lord. And to my shame, I just kind of, I kind of let it slide because I was afraid as I was addressing a moment ago, if I would admonish him, he'd hate me. If I'd admonish him, he wouldn't like me anymore. If I would admonish him, he wouldn't respect me anymore. Well, there came a a point in his life where it all came to a halt and where he repented of his sin and he, he came back to the Lord And he looked me in the eye, and here's what he said, and I'll never forget it. He said, why didn't you warn me? Now, there's a certain thing that we need to be aware of here, and that's called hurling, right? In in some scenarios, you might say he was blaming his sin on me. Why didn't you warn me? And so that would be on him if he's blaming that on me. But my responsibility was to admonish this young man, and I didn't. I didn't. And so when he uttered those words, why didn't you warn me? It just, it cut me. He was right. I needed to warn him. See, there's an order in the family. There's an order in the local church. And the order looks like this. God calls fathers to step up to the plate and lead. When one of our children, when, when someone in the local church family begins to walk in, in a way that doesn't please the Lord, we are called as leaders, as, as dads, to come alongside and admonish that person. There's a second mark of a God-centered dad that also occurs in verse 14, and that is that God-centered dads demonstrate extravagant love. And you say, where is it? I don't see it in the verse. Notice he says, he's admonishing you as my beloved children. It might surprise you when I say that it was not unusual at all for the Apostle Paul to tell his spiritual children, if if as it were, that he loved them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, 
but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Notice Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I love you. I have a passion for you. You are so dear to me. And it happens again in 1 Corinthians 4.14. He refers to these Christ followers as my beloved children. In Philippians 4.1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And what was the goal of, of his instruction or love? And we've already seen that part of the goal is that the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ would grow in their maturity. But there's another goal found in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And of course, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It was either, Ken, it was last week or the week before, Ken encouraged men And I I just love this. Ken said to the man, guys, it's time that we learn how to say I love you, right? For a lot, I I can just almost feel it. Like the guys are like, oh, man, are you kidding me? I got to tell another dude that I love him? Yes. Yes. This is a good thing. And so the application here is that I want to encourage dads in particular and grandfathers and great fathers. To to get in the habit of telling your children that you love them. Say to your son, say to your daughter, I love you. There's a third mark of the God-centered dad found in verses 8 to 13. And that is that God-centered dads provide perspective. We read this earlier But here Paul provides perspective by using the vehicle of sarcasm. The point is that he wanted the Corinthian believers to see themselves as they really were, not who they imagined themselves to be. Go over with me to the Old Testament for a moment, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and while you're turning there, You remember what happened in the life of King David. He was hanging out one day and he looked down and who did he see? He saw Bathsheba bathing and he made his way to the the courthouse where Bathsheba was. And you know the rest of the story. He committed adultery, sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite to the, the front of the infantry. And he was killed in battle. And so we have... A scenario where really David is, is, is guilty of not only adultery, but murder through the back door. And how did, Dave, how did Nathan the prophet confront King David? Now, many of us, if we were in Nathan's shoes, we would have gone to David and said, guilty of adultery, guilty of murder, repent, right? We'd bring the rod, as it were. But Nathan has a different Approach, And I want to have you look at this approach with me in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Look at verse 1. 
the Lord said, sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, he tells a story. There were two men in a certain city, and the, one was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Now think about this. Cute little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You get the idea here. So David is listening to this story, and he says in verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now think about it. David has committed adultery. David has led Uriah the Hittite to an untimely death, he hears the story from the prophet Nathan, and he in so many words says, off with his head. And Nathan responds with these amazing words, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God-centered dads follow the model of Nathan, the prophet, and they paint pictures. They tell stories in order to win the hearts of their children. You see, Nathan's intent was not mere law-keeping, and I think that's how a lot of dads are. We just want to keep the ledgers clear, right? But Nathan, the prophet, his desire was more than a clean ledger. His desire is that David would have a heart that was transformed. And fathers, with our, our daughters and our sons, that is exactly what God is looking for. He's looking for God-centered dads who, who speak into the lives of their children, who build that relationship with their children with the expressed aim of heart transformation. Heart transformation. Notice the fourth mark of a God-centered dad. It's found in verses 15 and 16. If you want to go back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here's one thing Paul does not say. He does not say, <laughs> he does not say, do as I say, not as I do. I think that's the 
cardinal sin of many dads in our culture. Do as I say, not as I do. Rather, he sets up an imperative. He sets up a command and he says this, I urge you, this is written in the present tense, which means it's a command that is to be perpetually obeyed. He says exactly what does he command the Corinthians to do? Imitate me. Imitate me. He says this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now here's what the word imitate means. If you look back at... Uh, verse 16, where Paul says, imitate me, it simply means this. It means to mimic me. It means to mimic me. It means to, to model your life after me. Now, think carefully about this. Isn't that something that Paul would look at his spiritual children and say, live life the way I do? And he says it in all humility. Fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, can you say to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, imitate me. Imitate me. And there are some questions I have for you. Questions that if you answer in the affirmative, then there are sins that need to be eliminated from your life. For instance, men, do you cheat on your taxes? If you cheat on your taxes, you cannot say to your children, imitate me. Please don't say imitate me. If you cheat on your taxes, that sin needs to be rooted out. Do you mistreat your wife? Nathan and I were talking the other day, driving down the road after we hit some golf balls. I was telling him about the trick I play on guys when I ask them, have you stopped beating your wife? Evidently, no one gets the trick. Have you stopped beating your wife? Oh, yeah, pastor. You've been beating your wife? Or if they say no, that's bad too. So it's just kind of a fun thing. But, man, are you mistreating your wife? Are you mishandling your wife? Are you treating your wife in a way that does not honor the Lord? If so, that needs to be rooted out of your life. Man, do you, do you disobey God? Do you disobey the word of God? If so... Those need to be rooted out of your life. You need to repent. Man, do you bow before idols? The idol of materialism. A hobby you might have. A, an idol in your life. A person that you seek to emulate that's turned into an idol. If you do, those things need to be rejected and repented of. Men, do you watch pornography? If you watch pornography, it is, it is impossible for you to say to your children, imitate me. And so these are things that need to be rooted out of our lives so that we, with, with a heart filled with integrity, can say like Paul did to our children, you need to imitate me. I remember both of my grandfathers are with the Lord now. If either of my grandfathers would have said to me, young man, I want you to jump, I would have said, how high, grandpa? Now, why is that? Because I had a deep love and respect for both my grandfathers. Do you have the kind of relationship with, with your children or your grandchildren that you could say jump and your kids or your grandkids say how high? 
That's exactly where we want to be. We aim for heart transformation. There's another mark of a God-centered dad that's found in verse 17. If you'd read that with me, Paul says, that's why I sent you Timothy, the young pastor Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This mark is that God-centered dads pass the torch of truth to the next generation of leaders. They pass the torch of truth to the next generation of leaders because they have a a great commission mindset. They have a desire to see the the passion for the gospel spread, not just in Whatcom County, but all around the world. Here's what Paul said to the young pastor, Timothy, in the book that bears his name, 2 Timothy. He said, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does that look like? It means men, our task with our children is to teach them the word of God. Our task with our children is to disciple them, to teach them what it means to walk in the way of the wise, what that looks like, to walk on the narrow path, to steer clear from the broad path right? That's, that's the goal. That's the mission that we have in mind. Paul says in first Thessalonians three, two, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. I've been making preparations to, to make another trip to the Republic of Belarus, Lord willing, next uh, February or March, 2020. One of the things I'm so excited about in this ministry at the Bible College in Belarus, is that that's exactly what they're doing with students. They're training up young men and young women so that they would be effective in the church, so that men could plant the church and and shepherd the flock of God, so that women can be engaged in ministry and lead in a way that honors the living God. This is what's happening in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so the challenge I want to offer to dads this morning is this. It's very simple, but it's, it's very important. Is dads, are you mentoring your children? Are you discipling your children? If your children are, are gone and out of the house, that, that imperative is still in place. I want to encourage you, if you're not mentoring someone, if you're not discipling someone, come alongside a young man, a young woman, And encourage that person. Men reaching out to young men. Women reaching out to young ladies. There's another mark of God-centered dads. And it's also found in verse 17. And that is that God-centered dads teach the word of God. This has been implicit throughout. The word teach means to impart skills or knowledge. And there are several facets of this teaching ministry. One is that it is consistent. It's consistent. That means we live consistent lives before our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also comprehensive. That is to say, you don't just focus on one book of the Scripture. You don't focus on one branch of theology. Rather, you give your kids the full meal deal. You teach them what it, what it looks like to live in the marketplace of ideas. You teach them how to respond to temptation. You teach them how to study the Word of God. You learn the word of God together. And then finally, in this model where a dad is teaching his children the word of God, compromise is non-existent. It was my uncle, my uncle Dwight, 
who said many years ago, never compromise the truth, never compromise the truth, never compromise the truth. May we follow those wise words. Finally, another mark of God-centered dads, we've already looked at this, is that they aim for heart transformation. Verses 19 and 20. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. I want to read this verse from the New Living Translation. It's an interesting take. And I, I find out whether these arrogant people are just big talkers or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just fancy talk. That's what grabbed me. The kingdom of God is not just fancy talk. It is living with God's power. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, a person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of his words, but by the power of his life. I believe that what we need in the church these days is less talk and more power. Our orientation needs to be fully focused on the kingdom of God. Here's the truth point. If you're taking notes, one of the greatest needs of our day is for God-centered dads to commit themselves to growing children and grandchildren deeply in the faith for the purpose of heart transformation. Jonathan Edwards said in the 18th century, gracious affections are such that the higher and purer they are, the more the appetite for God is increased. False affections are self-content and self-satisfied. That's what was happening in Corinth. The, the Corinthians were filled to the brim with pride. They were filled to the brim with self-centeredness and self-determination. And so the challenge this morning as we close is this. Are you going to be more like the Corinthians who were filled with pride and arrogance? Are you going to be like the Apostle Paul? Dads, do you have the courage this morning to correct your children when they walk down the wrong path? Do you have the courage to, to love them deeply from the heart and to tell them, I love you daily, not just once or twice, but daily? Do you set and provide perspective for your children? Do you set a godly example? Are you passing along the torch of truth to the next generation? One of the legacies of my family in particular has been my father and his father and my mother and her father and her parents who were godly, godly people. This is the legacy that all of us want to have in our families. I didn't ask for their permission and, and uh, I'm going to take a chance here and Andy and Cheryl, it's so good to have, have you here this morning. And I, I have noted to, to my wife, I don't know how many times, how much I appreciate your godly family. There is, a, there is a legacy of truth in this family that gets passed from generation to generation to generation. And it's not just in the older people. And Louie, you're at the top you're the guy who, who got the ball rolling, right? But it's not just with Louie and, and Andy and Cheryl and the rest of the kids. It's also with the grandkids 
in the spouses. And so I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a good example for me and a good example for people at, at Spring Creek and in your family. That's a challenge for all of us to pass this legacy to the next generation, a godly legacy. I want to imagine with you the impact that God-centered dads would have on the next generation. I want to have you look at one final scripture with me to give you an idea of what that looks like in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And as I was thinking about this section of scripture, I think with my own children, I'll have to ask them later, this is probably the section of scripture that we have read the most over the years. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. This is what the next generation needs. This is what our generation needs to walk in a way that is consistent with all that is good and right in Psalm chapter 1. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let me just say that I know some of the men, some of the fathers here at Christ Fellowship, you have raised your children in a way that is consistent with the word of God. And some of your children have taken a different path. Let me say this to encourage you. Your children are accountable. If your children have heard the word of God and they, they saw a, a, a godly man living with integrity before them, it's not that we're all perfect, but you, by God's grace, lived in a way that was pleasing to the Lord and your son or your daughter, that they've taken a different path and they're not walking with the Lord, they are accountable. They are accountable. And may I say, if your children are walking on a path that does not honor the living God, it is not your fault. Whose fault is it? It's their fault. And they are accountable. May I urge you, using the, the, the model of Augustine and his mother, who prayed for him year after year after year when he was in a situation where he, he was living a carnal life. He was not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Monica, Augustine's mom, never gave up. She prayed day after day after day after day. And you've heard the story probably 50 times from this pulpit. As Augustine was walking in the garden, he heard the little voice of a child say, Tolulege, take up and read. This is not the preferred model of Bible study or devotional practice, but he opened up the book of Romans. And what did he see? He read in the book of Romans, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, 
all those things Augustine have participated in, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, and God regenerated his heart. He went on to be one of the greatest, most profound Christian leaders in the history of the church. Why? God used Monica as an instrument of prayer, as an instrument of faithfulness. Men, if you have children and they're not walking with the Lord, don't give up on them. Pray for them. Love them. Tell them that you love them. Be a God-centered dad, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would leave uh, encouraged this morning and also challenged. I pray once again for dads, uh, that they would uh, remember these marks that we have uncovered today, that they would have a passion to be a a God-centered dad. I think of dads who perhaps themselves are not walking on a narrow path, and perhaps today is the day of repentance. Well, they will draw the line in the sand and say, I'm tired of living this way. It's time for me to live an exemplary life. It's time for me to live a a God-centered life so that I can say to my kids, imitate me, do as I say, not as I do. Father, I thank you for the, the many families in Christ fellowship, fathers in particular who have, who have led well, who have been examples of the word of God, examples of godliness. And I pray that you would build them up, encourage them on this day, cause their hearts not to be filled with pride, but to be filled with humility so that they would continue to be uh, godly examples to their families and to the watching world. Lord, we are, are anxious and eager about how you will use this church family as men step up to the plate to lead with integrity, to lead with humility, to have hearts that are contrite in spirit. We're trembling before your holy word. Please bless us. Please be merciful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.